You're listening to the What We Were podcast. This podcast is devoted to looking at important events and issues that affect us from around the world and that cry out for a new perspective that breaks the binary we often find ourselves trapped in. Our goal in doing so is to arrive just a few steps closer to what might be called the truth. Welcome. Right, it is January 29th, 2024 at the time of this recording. We'll try to get this cleaned up and published within a day or two, but I just want to make sure we get the timestamp in there. We here in America have an election coming up, a presidential election. It will be held on November 5th, and I think it could be, you know, the most consequential election of our young history, potentially. And... The odds of it being a true realignment election are really increasing every day, I think. What is a realignment election, you ask? A realignment election is one in which a large class of voters realigns with a political party or candidate whose vision for the country is a dramatic departure from the ones that are currently in power. Uh, There's a political scientist named Walter Burnham who talked a lot about this. He described these elections as ones that show an abrupt coalitional change. There have been at least six such realignment elections in American history. They are the election of 1800, when the Democratic-Republican Thomas Jefferson defeated the Federalist incumbent John Adams. The election of 1832, Andrew Jackson's re-election. The election of 1860, which Abraham Lincoln won with 39% of the vote. The election of 1896, William McKinley defeats William Jennings Bryan. The election of 1932, a landslide victory for Franklin Delano Roosevelt over Herbert Hoover. And the election of 1980, another landslide victory for Ronald Reagan over President Jimmy Carter. So... Between those elections, for the math wizards out there, that's an average of 36 years, okay? So it's now been 44 years since our last realignment election. And this year is shaping up to be a very interesting year for our presidential election. The two likely candidates for the Democrats and Republicans are respectively... 81 years old and 77 years old. These two are vying for the job of leader of the free world (laughs) and the second largest nuclear arsenal on planet Earth. To put that into perspective, you are forced to retire as a commercial airline pilot at 65 years old. State and local police and firefighters usually have mandatory retirement ages of between 55 and 60. Air traffic controllers have to retire at 56. Donald Trump and Joe Biden would both also be older than all but two CEOs in the Fortune 500. And, uh, you know, this podcast is called 
RFK Jr. and the coming political environment, the coming political enlightenment, rather. And uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is no spring chicken, by the way. He's 70 years old. Although, you know, he seems to be in better physical health than most people probably 30 years younger than him, and he seems very sharp. But the bottom line is that, you know, we have two extraordinarily unpopular individuals representing two extraordinarily unpopular political parties competing in an election year when a record number of Americans identify as independent. 49%. That's up from 31% back in 2004. The percentage of Americans who say we need a third party is at 63%. That's up from 40 percent in 2003. As of this moment, 52.1% of Americans have an unfavorable view of former President Trump, with 42.9% having a favorable view. And President Biden checks in at 55.2% unfavorable and 40.1% favorable. Now, according to the latest Gallup poll, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has a favorability rating of 52%, and he's unfavorable at 34%. So of all the candidates in the race, RFK Jr. is the only one who has a higher percentage of favorable to unfavorable. So it probably goes without saying, but I do think we're in need of a realignment election in America. We're undoubtedly overdue for one. But I, I think we may need one now more than ever. I think if we're honest with ourselves, the records of both the Republican and Democratic parties since at least the 1960s have been mostly atrocious, with a few exceptions here and there. So let's take a look at what we've gotten from our two major political parties for the past several decades. So the White House and, and Congress, essentially, is what I'm going to focus on. Let's look at foreign policy. I would submit that the United States has had a 60-plus year run of some of the most short-sighted and self-destructive foreign policy in the history of great powers in the world. I'm far from a world historian, but I, I cannot imagine another nation in the history of the world that has given up so much blood and treasure for so little in return as the United States has over the last 60 some odd years. In that time, we have gained more enemies and now have fewer true friends among the nations of the world now than we did 60 years ago. In fact, our image abroad, if not here at home as well, seems to have been permanently altered from that of a, you know, mostly creative, peace-loving, entrepreneurial, free people to that of a people who are increasingly warlike and erratic 
as if going through some sort of an identity crisis. And an identity crisis, I think, is exactly what's happened to us. And resolving that identity crisis as soon as possible, I believe, is a prerequisite for world peace. It's a prerequisite because the United States' economic and cultural mass is so enormous that it practically has its own gravitational pull. There's a famous expression that when France sneezes, the rest of Europe catches a cold. I'm not sure if that still applies to Europe today, but I think it's safe to say that if America sneezed, countries across multiple continents would catch a cold. In other words, if we continue to descend into violence and chaos, at least some of the world will descend with us. All of the chaos that's become an expected feature of American society. I mean, the chaos of being unable to speak your mind in public without being shouted down. The chaos of thousands of non-Americans illegally entering our country each day. Many of them with no possibility of ever tracking them. I mean, the chaos of a historic drug ep epidemic that is consuming our cities right before our eyes. All of that chaos, I think, is the result of an identity crisis. We no longer know who we are or who we're supposed to be or where we're going. Most Americans cannot even pass the citizenship tests that we give immigrants who are applying for citizenship here. Most Americans don't know even the basics about how their government works at the federal or the local level. Most Americans couldn't tell you what makes the United States so different from other countries. So like an adolescent struggling to figure out his own identity, we behave erratically. We elect people who don't have our best interest at heart. We spend money we don't have. We bomb other countries that we perceive to be threats. So we have to get through our identity crisis. Not just so that we, but so that the world can get back to sleeping at night. And we haven't been sleeping at night, metaphorically speaking, for far too long. Many would say it's been decades or a century or more. I don't know if that would be an exaggeration or not. But all this is to say that, you know, our political parties are awful. They're beyond awful. They're corrupt. They're in on the take. They claim to represent our best interests, but with few exceptions. They do so only in rhetoric. You know, many... People, you'll notice, many of the people representing those two parties, they come into office without much wealth, only to leave office 
extravagantly wealthy men and women. Why is that? How does that work? Not only that, our politicians are ill-mannered, ill-tempered, hardly ever charismatic anymore. They're repetitive and predictable, which is why they're so easy to caricature and mimic. They are horrifically bad custodians of our American family finances. And we are a family here. And since when do we not fire the people who are mismanaging our money after just a year? Let alone six decades of mismanagement. And we just keep rehiring the same people from the same two firms. Every two years, every four years. And I think it will probably have to start at the top in a presidential race. Which is why this is the topic of today's podcast. But it's not going to end there. The American people are on the verge of making dramatic changes to their political leadership across the board in every representative body, federal, state, and local. Because they're finally starting to see the absolute rot in their political class from top to bottom and from left to right, from national to state and local. This is not an exaggeration. We have allowed the worst among us, the worst among us, to be put into positions of power in our government. There used to be a joke, you know, but it's now become just fact that you could randomly select people from the phone book in America to serve as our political representatives, and they do a better job than the people that we actually vote to send there. And the reason for that is not that a random assortment of Americans would have better positions on the panoply of issues that dominate American politics, although that may also be true. The main reason is because they would be better simply because a random assortment of Americans are more likely to be fully conscious, normal, non-dogmatic people who are capable of looking at issues with fresh eyes and, you know, without so much of the ideological or partisan commitments that a know-it-all student body president turned lawyer turned politician has. By the way, I just looked this up earlier today. I think it's something like 33%. A third of Congress is made up of lawyers. No offense to anyone in my audience who's a lawyer, but I think if any lawyers are listening to this, I think they're probably self-aware enough to know how miserable life would be if one in three people you were surrounded by were lawyers. And Robert F. Kennedy is also a lawyer, and I don't, I don't love that about him, to be honest. But as lawyers go, Robert F. Kennedy nephew of John F. Kennedy, who was assassinated, and son of then Robert F. Kennedy, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who was also assassinated. He seems to be 
if nothing else, fully conscious and, and human. He seems to be the one candidate still in the race who is capable of empathizing with any American who holds any viewpoint. Not agreeing with, just empathizing with. And that may be all he needs to do to be, to actually win the election. Because when someone empathizes with you and gets your world as it occurs for you, there's almost no better feeling in the world. And Americans haven't felt that from their leaders in I, I don't know how long, not in my lifetime. I don't think that all our recent presidents don't care about us. But all of our recent presidents have been almost completely incapable of expressing that they care about us. So the first leader to come along who authentically empathizes with Americans of all political beliefs and all backgrounds is going to be tapping into a decades-long unrequited desire of Americans to just be heard by their politicians. To just be heard. And I think Robert F. Kennedy is capable of doing that. He seems to be honest. He does not seem to think he has all the answers to every single problem we have. He has some strong views on things and some controversial views on some things. But you never get the sense when you hear him talk that you know he's certain beyond a reasonable doubt that he is right about something, including his views on vaccines, which he's very you know passionate about. But you know even on vaccines, he's never as militant in the way he talks about it as you know Joe Biden is about climate change or the insurrection, or the way Donald Trump is when he talks about Iran or NATO, militant. No room for negotiation. Mine's made up. No new facts are going to change anything with those two. With RFK, on every subject I've heard him speak on, he seems open to having his mind changed. In other words, he's just, he's not dogmatic. He occasionally says, I don't know, or I'm not sure. To questions that he gets asked, which is just not something that politicians do, American politicians especially. American politicians, you know, they think they have to have an answer prepared for everything, and that's not possible. That's insane. But the duopoly, which is the term that's used to describe the two-party cabal, that dominates our politics would probably never allow a fully conscious human being to be their party nominee for president anymore. They haven't in decades. And, you know, their ability to ensure that their preferred candidate or puppet gets chosen has only become stronger as the years have gone by. So for the past several decades, we've been stuck with choosing between the lesser of two evils. We know our options haven't been good, but you know the infrastructure and the resources needed to 
win a modern election have made independent candidates seem like risky pipe dreams. So we haven't given independent candidates a lot of serious consideration in a long time. And to be honest, all of our independent candidates of late, going back to you know the early 90s, they have not been the most charismatic individuals. And I think all of them have come you know, preloaded with a bunch of either right or left-leaning views that make them essentially like more principled versions of one of the two candidates already running on behalf of the Republican or Democratic Party, right? So it's not like, they're not coalition builders. They're not people who are going to create some new coalition. They're just going to draw votes away from the Republican or the Democrat. But even still, Ross Perot, in the 1992 election, he got 19% of the vote. Not a charismatic guy. No offense to Ross Perot fans. But the media landscape has dramatically changed. And the ability of relatively unknown dissident voices to suddenly be heard on a mass scale in a very short amount of time and with limited resources, is it, it's extraordinary. It's we've never seen this before. Over the last ten years, the the traditional media landscape has been, you know, completely upended. Which means that independent candidates can spread their message on platforms not controlled by party elites or large corporations, and that may give RFK Jr the chance to actually make his case to the American people in a way that no independent candidate has been able to do in over 100 years. He'll do it on podcasts, he'll do it on X, and eventually it's going to be hard to keep him off the presidential debate stage. Because right now he's polling at 18% of the overall vote, and a lot of Americans still don't know who he is. But standing between Donald Trump on the right and Joe Biden on the left in a primetime debate in which, you know, he just refuses to engage in put downs and he focuses only on talking about issues that Americans are capable of coming together on right now. That contrast is going to be stark. Beyond the media landscape, though, I, I think Americans are catching on to something. They're catching on to the fact that our political representatives in Congress and unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, most likely those in your state legislature and even in your city council and sadly, probably even in your, on your school boards, all of these people with vanishingly few exceptions are merely handmaidens to a powerful special interest. And many of them don't even know it. Most of them are only, you know, semi-conscious. And most of the time, they're unwittingly serving the interests of someone or something other than you or your fellow citizens. Some not insignificant number of them are corrupt whether they realize it or not. 
Let me put a, just a finer point on that statement. Some not insignificant number of them are corrupt, whether they realize it or not. Because, you know, most of these people are so thoroughly surrounded by sycophants and yes-men who only praise their every word and action that, you know, the, the politicians themselves, they don't even realize that they're actually the bad guys. Even when they're the ones in on the take and reaping the benefits and watching their net worth climb while in office. I sincerely believe that with very few exceptions, exceedingly rare exceptions, even the thoroughly corrupted are actually not consciously aware that they're part of the problem. The vast majority of them think that they are actually doing some good and you know, whatever small benefits they get for doing good or, you know, their justifiable compensations for their superior intellect and their public service. I really believe most of them have no idea that they've been snookered or co-opted by some special interest that clouds their judgment or completely controls their decision-making. There's very little doubt anymore in my mind, at least, that Joe Biden is deeply corrupt. You know, the funny part of that is I don't think that Joe Biden goes to bed at night thinking he's corrupt. I don't think it even weighs on his conscience. Because in Washington, D.C., that's just the water they swim in. That's just the water they swim in. And to a fish, what is water? But Americans, you know, at long last... I believe we're starting to see this. We're starting to develop a mental image of a personality type that we keep seeing find its way somehow into political office by pitting us against one another, tribe against tribe, whatever the tribe may be, some all-consuming political cause or some immutable characteristic like the color of our skin or our religion. And they find their way into office that way. It's a personality type that predominates in most of our political bodies now. You'll recognize it when I describe it. It's, it's, it's the one that plays golf, a lot of golf, typically. Has an enormous ego. An ego big enough to raise its own hand to volunteer with a straight face to be president for 330 million people. It's extremely sensitive to criticism of any kind. It sees absolutely everything in black or white terms. So you're always either with them or against them. It's a personality type that's incapable of nuanced thinking. Their words are almost always poll tested and pre-written or practiced in front of a mirror or read off a teleprompter because their words rarely come from their heart. Most of the time, whatever they're saying is just a talking point. A devitalized and fixed thing that is not open for debate. And talking points never transform anything, by the way. Talking points don't win people over through reason. They merely saturate the airwaves until no other ideas can be heard over the din of repetitive bullshit. And any alternative ideas are forced to surrender. 
But I do believe Americans are waking up to this. I can't say exactly why I think that. I just, I just it's a sense that I get. I, I, I genuinely believe this. There's a spark I see in the eyes of my fellow Americans. I see it in the cashier at my local grocery store. I saw it in some of the nurses at uh, the hospital recently. I saw it in the eyes of Iowa voters. People want to breathe. They want the tension out of their shoulders. They want to not worry so much about military conflicts abroad and crime and disorder and devastation here at home. They want to actually get along with their neighbors and their relatives. They want to let bygones be bygones. They want a president for once who they can be proud of as a man. Not just a politician. Who seems normal and authentic. Who isn't as polished as a McKinsey consultant. Or as crude as a sailor. You should try looking yourself, by the way. Actually look your fellow Americans in the eyes. And try to get what their world is like. Grasp someone else's struggle in some small way, just for a few seconds. How often do we do that now? I think we're dangerously out of practice. And it's mostly technology that's to blame. You don't even need to look at the person delivering your food anymore, much less interact with them. Our, the mass transit systems, they're full of people who, who don't even look at each other, much less talk to one another. Do we always have so little in common that we have nothing to say to anyone except the people we know by name? That seems strange to me. That seems sad. But I do see something coming to life in my fellow Americans. I, I sense that people are reaching out for human connection that transcends, you know, the partisan or the class divide. They're sending out little signals that they actually miss being connected to their fellow citizens. That they're exhausted by the left-right divide our media forces us to believe is an all-encompassing, unalterable reality. It's not. And I've said for several years now that the first candidate or political party that arises to embrace this more conscious, more human approach to politics that we've somehow lost they will win. And if they stay true to that approach, they will quickly accumulate a large governing majority with which to achieve their goals. I really thought this would be the year that that happened. A year ago, I, I, probably, I probably would have bet on it, even though that would have been totally crazy. But I started to doubt it as the second half of 2023 just got weirder and weirder. And it looked like we were just falling into the same stupid routine that we've done over and over for decades. The routine where we, where we, we have these fake debates 
where you know candidates respond to the same 10 or 15 questions that we've asked them for 20 years about the climate, about our foreign adversaries, about growing the economy, and this scandal or that scandal, and they have a minute to respond. As if any of those issues can be intelligently discussed over the course of 60 seconds. And once again, instead of telling us their vision for the future of the country and their understanding of its past, they just repeat their same, the, the talking points. They repeat whatever talking points they've memorized. The same ones that we've been hearing, by the way, for decades. By the end of the Iowa caucus, I, I thought it was over. I, I actually thought Vivek Ramaswamy might be the guy to transcend the partisan divide and build a new American coalition, even though he was, you know, running for the Republican Party ticket. I thought that was possible, but he dropped out. I was devastated. I want my country to awaken from its slumber. I want us to get back to being neighbors, to work together, to volunteer our time together, to have respectful, calm debates with one another without ambition or malice, but with the goal of learning something. But now I, I'm, I'm starting to think that it may still be possible to have this be the year. It's not exactly how I would have drawn it up. I, I never counted myself as an RFK Jr. fan before this, and I, I, I had plenty of problems with the political party to which he's belonged for so many years. I, I don't even, I really don't like his Uncle Teddy very much. But, you know, RFK Jr., according to all the evidence I've seen, appears to actually be a conscious, living, breathing human being, feeling human being. One who doesn't think he knows everything and who, when it comes to things he you know, knows a lot about, like nuclear energy or vaccines, is open to having his mind changed. He appears to be someone who can admit mistakes, not sweep them under the rug or pass blame. Someone who knows that, you know, there's some issues in American politics that are just too contentious right now. Americans are too dug in. And we should focus on the things that unite us for a few years first. And try fixing what we all agree needs fixing. Before we go about remaking our country into something, you know, that at most only half the country agrees with, as our last several presidents have tried to do, he pledged to pardon Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. Two men who bravely pulled back the curtain on our corrupted government to show us what was lurking there. Why didn't Donald Trump do that when he had the chance? Why hasn't Joe Biden? And agree or disagree with his views on vaccines, some of which I acknowledge are kooky and short on facts? The United States and the world just lived through, is living through, a public health tyranny that has hobbled our economies, made everything we buy, everything we need to live, more expensive, driven a wedge between families, 
injected 70% of the world population with an experimental vaccine that didn't do what it was advertised to do and hurt way more people than we were told it would. And both Donald Trump and Joe Biden decided to keep the public health totalitarians in power throughout their terms of office. The public health totalitarians who forced us to stop going to church told us to stop shaking hands to greet fellow human beings and avoid visiting grandma. Don't visit grandma on her deathbed. And I sympathize with those who see the redeeming qualities in Donald Trump compared to Joe Biden. But, you know, after the way he handled the pandemic, I don't trust either of them. This is not an endorsement. I, I am truly undecided at this point. And I probably won't ever you know, make a habit of endorsing political candidates here because my guess is as good as yours. As for RFK Jr.'s chances, I, I think it's going to depend a lot on who he picks for vice president. There just aren't a lot of truly, fully conscious human beings who have recent political experience that he could call upon. Maybe Rand Paul, maybe Tulsi Gabbard. I think the wise move would be to find someone who's a match for his own humanity, but who could also, you know, rightfully represent that other half of the politically homeless who once identified as Republican or conservative, but who just lost faith in the so-called leaders of both. But I see no evidence that he won't do just that. Based on his work on the campaign trail thus far, and his, you know, kind of reassuring statements about some important but divisive issues that he's just going to leave them alone for a while in the interest of unity, you know, he appears to know exactly what needs to happen in order to win the White House, in order to build a new coalition. So I suspect he will choose the person I described. This election is so much bigger than right or left, Republican or Democrat. Our Bill of Rights is no longer intact. And we could probably spend the next four years just trying to restore the Bill of Rights to its rightful place as the supreme law of the land. Take all your other pet issues and put them on ice for the next four years while we try to claw back some of our sovereignty as citizens some of our privacy as human beings, some of our dignity as Americans. You know, what, what no politician has seemed to figure out and articulate is that although Americans are often opinionated and even passionately defensive about some of those opinions, most of them just want to live life in peace. Most of them just want to raise their family in a good neighborhood with barely any crime and send their kids to good schools where they will become better individuals and citizens, not unfeeling narcissists or nihilists. Most of them just want to be told how much they owe in taxes so that we don't have to stress about it or waste even more money trying to make sure it gets done right. 
Most are tired of reading about our involvement in wars and strategic bombing campaigns in places we've never heard of with people we've never met. Most just want their privacy back. For bad men to be punished and good men to be respected regardless of their political views. Most just want to watch a ball game without being rudely interrupted by virtue-signaling creeps. Most just want to be able to turn politics off for the next four years because for once in their lives, they've got such good leadership that they can actually go about their lives without worrying so much about who's in charge of our economy or our nuclear arsenal. Wouldn't that be nice? Whatever this thing is that we're up to right now, the way we're treating each other, the way we're turning a blind eye to the glaring problems, like, you know, if we, if we don't see it, it just goes away. Whatever that is, it's not nationhood. It's not a nation. It's something else. And I don't know how long we can continue to behave as if we're not a nation before we actually become what, what we're acting out. Some of us have passionate beliefs on either side of various issues, abortion, the death penalty, drugs, whatever it is. But most of us would be happy if our leaders just started making life better for we, the living, and more secure for our posterity. That's all that most of them want. And if RFK Jr. is able to continue demonstrating that he can deliver results on all those fronts, that he actually gets that, he will be our next president. And he may deserve to be. He is not the savior I had in my mind's eye by any means. He's not exactly how I drew it up. But if I can be convinced to support his candidacy, and that is a possibility, I think many millions more are about to follow. This is a big year for the United States of America. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I am as worried as I could be because it seems like there are more bad possibilities than good. But I'm hopeful, and I think we have to be. So here's hoping that we, the people of these United States, are finally beginning to awaken from our long slumber to reclaim our heritage as the freest people on planet Earth, committed only to peace and prosperity. Thank you for listening. Give us a follow. Share with a friend. God bless and be well.